Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the East-West Psychology Podcast, a forum for the exploration of psyche and spirit. Join our hosts, Jonathan Kay and Stefan Julich, and their guests as they delve into the intersection of psychology, philosophy, world wisdom traditions, the arts, and more. In this episode, we speak with philosophy, cosmology, and consciousness core faculty, Jack Bagby, about his engagement with the philosophy of music, from Socrates to Schopenhauer and Bergson. We discussed Jack's recent PCC class called The Philosophy of Music and the Attunement of the Soul, and dive into the complex ideas of these thinkers regarding the transformative powers of music. Jack explains how the ancient Greeks developed a complex set of tuning systems and alternative temperaments, which contained powerful attributes and psychic properties, in which one can attune themselves to through the development of an affective psychology. Jack and myself have been experimenting, composing and improvising in some of these modes, and we share three pieces based on these ancient Greek temperaments. All right, back with another East-West Psychology episode. Um, we're very, uh, we're very honored to have uh, Jack Bagby, uh, a, f- a friend of mine who I've been uh, getting to know over the semester as a TA in his class, um, Philosophy of Music and the Attunement of the Soul, and uh, and a professor in uh, the PCC department, the Philosophy, Cosmology, and Consciousness department. And we have him here today, and we're going to explore. Um, uh, music and and his work uh, in philosophy, and so this is very exciting. Um, we're also going to get a chance to hear some of uh, his compositions that him and I have kind of collaborated on in some old Greek modes, and um, and I think it's uh, it's I'm I'm excited to have you. Welcome, uh, Jack and Stefan as well. Thank you. Great to be here. Nice to meet you, Jack. Yeah. So, Jack, why don't you just, uh, you know, kind of maybe give a little introduction to our listeners uh, about your journey into philosophy and and music and how that led you to uh, to to CIAS? Well, the first thing I read that was philosophy was in high school and it was Plato's Republic. And it was very intriguing. And I was really into history and, and music and stuff at the time as well. And when I went to college, I was a history major and sort of thought about taking philosophy so i took a philosophy course and immediately switched from history to philosophy and um really never turned back (laughs) Uh, and yeah greek philosophy has been a constant uh interest of mine and the republic in general um which something we've covered in our class jonathan this semester but my interests have really spanned a lot of different time periods and topics and coming to CIS was a perfect fit for that exact reason because our department in PCC is extremely interdisciplinary and has a lot of different paths you can go down um, coming here as a grad student. Um, And so, yeah, like the, 
it's a dream job to me in a lot of ways because my first year, this is my first year teaching and I'm already teaching this class, the philosophy of music class, which is pretty unheard of in your first year to be able to teach a class like that anywhere in academia. Um, and I'm also teaching two other classes that are really near and dear to me. One is uh, was in the fall, which was Merleau-Ponty's philosophy of nature. And that really gets into uh, phenomenology and uh, transcendental philosophy and things like that, which are a huge interest of mine, um, the study of consciousness, embodiment, perception. And we also did some Bergson and some French spiritualism and things like that, which are other interests of mine. Um, and then the other class I'm teaching right now is the, metaphys uh, the metaphysics of integral ecology. So really digging into ecological uh, paradigms, thermodynamics, evolution, uh, self-organization, things like that. Um, and again, kind of a historical approach, which is always kind of my way to go. So we started with the uh, Stoics in that class, and now we're up in the 21st, 20th and 21st century. Right now we're doing Deleuze. Um, so it's a really expansive course as well. Uh, but that's exactly what PCC is all about, and it's been really great to be in this department. Fantastic. Um, I thought, you know, because this is, you know, where Stefan and I are in the East-West Psychology Department, mm -hmm. and um, there was a talk you gave for the PCC Forum, um, was called Tuning, Caring for, and Recollecting the Soul in Socrates' Swan Songs. And um, the the soul is something that's very central in in East-West psychology, for sure. I mean, if we think of the word psychology and go back to the Greek origin of that word, it means that, you know, so I think that uh, in East-West psychology is different, lots of different approaches to to soul work and soul making and and whatnot. But being a musician, it, for me, it was always natural to that that inquiry, that process um, was always d directly related to music. And so when I um, when when I met you, I was uh, being very excited to, to more literally start to study that and so that's what that's why i'm excited to, to introduce your work to the our listeners and 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 start folding your work into also the east-west psychology kind of discourse community so i was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that talk stefan and i have watched it um and we could discuss some of the ideas but maybe just start wherever you'd like um yeah well it's the the topics of that piece are basically Socrates at his time of death, right before he, uh, well, in the dialogue, he actually dies. So um, it has both sides in that sense. Um, and at this time, Socrates is actually writing music and music is a major theme throughout the whole dialogue. Um, so, the, yeah, so the big themes are death and music and metaphysics and the soul. Um, and it kind of interweaves these in a really ingenious way that is very singular to Plato, um, this kind of indirect method of not giving us the answers in sentences and propositions and handing them to us, but giving us something that we have to work with and work back from uh, to come to the ideas on our own. And, you know, the dialogue, the Phaedo is not one of the most respected dialogues. Um, a lot of people see it as just kind of this like storytelling of Socrates giving us unbelievable fables about the immortality of the soul and that it's kind of just not an interesting dialogue to a lot of people um and i kind of fell into that view for a while and um i picked up this copy on uh 
of the of the book the focus philosophical library publication of it um of the fido which is like a new uh translation picked it up on uh vacation at some point just because i saw it somewhere for cheap um and it, i didn't really have any you know real motivation for reading it and then i don't know it jumped off the shelf i guess at, at one point and I, I think this was around this time last year actually um and i and i dove into it and i was like, yeah whatever I'll, I'll read it why not and i just found it enthralling and i read it like 10 times um over like a two-month period and wrote this what is the you know makings of an article it's not quite there yet um i'm still revising it but uh yeah, I just found all these themes that I had been working on in other areas, you know, music, metaphysics, uh, phenomenology of consciousness and the soul. Uh, they were all being answered in this dialogue and especially memory. So memory is another really important theme in the Phaedo um, and recollection, Plato's doctrine of recollection. But we get a slightly different account of recollection in this dialogue that's really interesting. Um so yeah, those are the main themes and ideas that really got me excited about this and was kind of why I wrote it. And to bring in the musical uh, perspective, it, it it's really uh, approaching the idea of tuning, kind of tuning, mm -hmm. tuning of the soul. And so yeah. could you talk a little bit more about, you know, what the soul is in, in, in this yeah. perspective and also the processes of tuning? And then maybe mm -hmm. we can get into the more specific of, how that actually is a is a musicological or is a musical yeah practice yeah. yeah so i mean the basic insight of the uh platonic socratic musicology um is that certain scales which we refer to nowadays usually as modes but you could also think of them as different tuning systems the different modes scales tuning systems uh elicit different emotions or character traits or virtues that when you listen to them you actually feel those emotions and it gets you in the headspace of those virtues so in the republic for instance there are certain scales that if we play them they're going to make us more philosophical they're going to get us in a mindset to to do philosophy to be able to endure what it takes to to go through different dialectics and you know analyzing arguments and being really careful to go back over our arguments and make sure we didn't make mistakes and all of that that all takes a certain kind of attitude and mood and affect right a certain emotional stand, state and socrates and plato are saying that there is musical modes that elicit those states right so it combines a sort of psychology uh, like you call it moral psychology or emotional psychology affective psychology um that is being explored through a comparison with musical modes right so obviously we have person personae or you know characters that are uh quick to anger or impulsive or things like that and in the republic the tyrannical soul is constantly uh being analyzed and and feared almost right and and there are certain modes socrates says that perfectly exhibit that kind of tyrannical <laughs> spirit and then there are certain modes that fit the spirit of warriors and then there are ones that are philosophical so the the entire moral psychology of this 
of the Greek world that Socrates and Plato are giving us perfectly is perfectly reflected in certain musical scales um, with particular tunings. Okay, so that's kind of the the psychology side. Then you have the tuning element, which you know they didn't have a cork tuner, they didn't have a digital tuner, they didn't have tuning forks or anything like that. They, everything was going by ear, basically, and. The Pythagoreans did a lot to mathematize and create a science of harmony such that they could understand these relationships that they were hearing numerically and mathematically. Um, but the real lesson there is that there are certain intervals that are more consonant and that we tend to sing and to play. And this is pre-mathematical or pre-philosophical, anything like that. Like, you know, we have uh flutes like uh neanderthal flutes from uh 40,000 years ago that have diatonic scales in them and a diatonic scale always basically includes fourths and fifths these are basic and octaves like these basic intervals which correspond to whole number values like two to one three to two four to three and so we can hear those by ear and you can easily train yourself to find those if you are tuning a lyre or something like that, um, or just singing. They're, they're very easy to find. There's hundreds of <laughs> intervals that are possible that are incredibly difficult to sing or play. And Jonathan understands that because we've been really diving into some of these more uh, complex tunings and how difficult they can be. But these intervals are very easy. And Based on those intervals alone, you can create a tuning system that is called the Pythagorean tuning system. And it's a very neat, orderly system of tuning that is easy to do because all you need to do is tune fourths or fifths. Um, and this is presented in the Republic. Uh, well, in the Republic, it's ambiguous if this is the scale used or not. And this is something Jonathan and I have kind of talked about more. Um, but in the Timaeus, which is another really important dialogue of Plato's, this scale that I just described, the Pythagorean scale, is used as a model to create the world soul. Um, those basic intervals are used by the demiurge in this mythic story of the creation of the world to sort of disperse matter in an orderly way, which allows it to become basically a living organism. It allows the universe to be this orderly living organism. Um, so there was a lot in the, in the myth, uh, well, the cosmological view of the Pythagoreans about how these mathematical structures were the underlying structures of the um, physical world. But what we see in other Pythagoreans, other so that main scale comes from Philolaus, and again, it's repeated in Plato. But another really important Pythagorean whose name is Architas of Tarentum, um, he, and this is someone whose scales Jonathan and I have kind of experimented with a little bit, um, his is much more difficult to tune. It, ha it uses these very strange ratios, and you really have to um, use your ear in order to do it, especially using like the seventh partial for anybody who knows um, about just intonation and the harmonic series. Um, it uses these very sort of strange intervals to us, um, but they do have a kind of natural basis within mathematics and um, harmony more generally. So the Greeks basically had these really complex tuning systems and they had many of them. And Ptolemy, Ptolemy um, of Alexandria 
uh, passes us down a bunch of these. He records them from many different periods in Greek history. Um, so that's where we're getting the scales from when Jonathan and I have been um, experimenting with this. And so, you know, we we can think in our musical terms kind of of like major and minor as eliciting different emotions, right? What major is like a, a very happy sound and a minor scale is a very sad sound. Uh, it can be at least. <laughs> um, and, you know, there's other modes between that, but that's what the majority of our music is made up of, of those two scales. Um, so with minor changes in those interval patterns, you get very different emotional overall qualitative feeling. Um, so there's a lot of expressive potential in alternate tuning systems like the Greeks were using. And, and you have to think they didn't have things like guitar effects and they they had a very limited number of instruments they could use and they didn't have pipe organs right with like a hundred different presets and things so if you really wanted to get a different sound a different vibe a different emotion um this was a a viable way to do that i'm just going to jump in for a sec and say let's listen um so we can listen to some of this music there's a maybe two to three minute tracks um why don't we listen to uh because we were speaking about Architas, why don't we listen to the track that you titled A Peon of Apollo the Healer in Architas Dorian Diatonic. Let's listen to that.
that was gorgeous <laughs> it was deeply gorgeous really beautiful all right all right, all right. have you so you know, I noticed that it was written as that this was composed and performed by, is it a composition or is it uh, um, an improvisation, a little of both? A little bit of both, yeah. The The writing process of it was sort of improvisational, and then I went back through and edited it um, and touched stuff up and removed certain passages and kind of condensed it. Wow, that was just really beautiful. I was thinking before, as you were, you know, as we were leading up to this, that the, you know, the first thought, and Jonathan, you'd understand this, the first thought that popped into my head when you were talking about the modes was the 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 rogs, right? The raga scales. But then I began to think that maybe the these uh the modes have more in common with uh, the theories or ideas around Ras, right? Around Rasa, because it's more, it's more limited. Uh, because there are less modes than there are ragas. I I don't know, Jonathan, whether that makes sense or Jack, if that makes sense to you. And I, I just wanted to add one more thing, uh, and I would love to hear you guys talk about this. Um, Jack, in the conversation that you had or in the talk that you gave at um, in PCC during during the question and answers, mm -hmm. you were talking about the music of the spheres mm -hmm. and. Um, I think that it came out of the, a conversation around the attunement to the natural world and how the world, the world soul is kind of akin to consciousness. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking that, you know, the music of the spheres, if you listen to what's available, you know, like online or on, mm. on in YouTube and stuff, it, they often sounds really discordant, especially mm -hmm. when you play planets next to one another. Mm -hmm. And yet you were talking about a higher harmony. And I kept thinking about my own ear and conversations that I've had with Jonathan and listening to Jonathan's music, mm -hmm. which often sounds discordant to my ear mm -hmm. uh, and i have to stretch myself to hear the the kind of more profound um relationality that jonathan is having with with the music it's yeah. it's advanced of my ear my ears i have to catch up to where jonathan's at so i'm thinking in terms of consonance and dis dissonance that um and I'll, I'll just drop one other thing in that I know enough about the, um, is it the uh, the harmonic scale, the scale the of harmonics, mm -hmm. the harmonic series, that if you were able to hear all of the notes in the series, mm -hmm. it essentially comes back and it touches on every note mm -hmm. that is in the scale. So mm -hmm. there's, it seems to me that there that there is a higher harmony. Mm -hmm. This particular piece in this particular mode was pretty much harmonic all the way through there the dissonances even sounded beautiful Thank so there's this a i know this is more of a comment than a question but the question is can you speak to these ideas and let me know what i'm missing or kind of flesh it out yeah i have a lot of thoughts based on that, that those are wonderful questions um the first thing i wanted to just clear up about modes which was part of your first question so in Greek, the word tonos and harmonia both can mean mode, which classically in our understanding coming from the medieval times is like you have a piano and let's say you're only playing the white keys. You can start on C and play a major scale, but you can start on any of those keys and whatever key you start on is going to give you a different mode. It's just a different arrangement of the same notes. And in that sense, the modes are extremely limited. There's basically four of them. Although you can have these other modes like uh, harmonic and um, 
Jonathan, help me. Harmonic minor and uh, melodic minor. <laughs> yeah, there we go. Uh, but basically, we have a very limited set of of modes. But in Greek, the the word tonos and harmonia can also mean a tuning system that isn't just like you could use the same interval pattern, but just move those intervals very slightly. So you still have like basically like a whole tone is a larger step and a and a half tone or semitone is a smaller step. So you still have large step, small step, but that large step could be you know a little bit uh, higher or a little bit lower than than the scale that we use. So the and that for us is called intonation, but for them they just referred to that also as harmonia. So there's an ambiguity there, and the word uh, tonos and harmonia actually can mean uh, the key that it's in as well. Like we would say that it's in C or that it's in A. We just mean where you're starting. Um, and it can also mean a style. So, you know, these are Greek cultures that like subcultures that it's naming the Dorian, the Phrygian, uh, the Phrygians and Anatolian um, subculture. But and and there was a style that went along with it, too. And it's very difficult in reading the ancient text to know at times which one they're referring to. And this is a problem in the Fido. Um, and they play on that ambiguity, actually. Um, so, you know, Socrates says the Dorian mode is the best mode, but it's possible to play the Dorian mode in a different tuning system that isn't the Dorian tuning system and in a style that isn't the Dorian style. And those multiple layers of agreement is actually really important um, to Socrates' discussion in the Republic when he's talking to Glaucon, because Glaucon's in a philosophical conversation, but he's not attuned to philosophical conversation. His his soul isn't in the Dorian mode, if the Dorian mode is the philosophical one. Uh, it's in Mixolydian or something tyrannical, right? And he's trying to play in that mode. Uh, but uh, it was commonly believed if you played in a tuning system other than that mode's tuning system or in a style other than that mode's style, you would gradually kind of fall back into it. So like, if you started singing something in Phrygian, but you were singing in the intonation of Dorian, you would eventually just end up in Dorian. Um, which kind of rings true to certain aspects of music. I think Jonathan would agree with that. So, um, yeah, it's a it's a multi layered thing. And what we're playing in that piece is Architas's specific tuning system in the Dorian tuning. Um, so that was one thing I wanted to mention. Um, and then you you mentioned this really fascinating idea about uh, concordance and discordance, and this is again a really important aspect of Socrates' argument because, you know, if any scale, even a perfectly tuned just intonation or our, you know, 12 tone scales, which sound perfectly in tune to us, if we have a perfectly tuned piano, it's going to sound in tune. If you walk up to that piano and slam all the keys at once, it's going to sound like cacophonous, right? So any tuning system, any harmonia involves both consonants and dissonance. It's all about playing them in the right order and knowing the kind of internal, you know, psychical state, the attunement of a soul that wants to express itself in that tuning. Like you can't just pick up these tunings and play them without knowing what kind of feeling they're supposed to have and like having that intention behind it to make it sound like something. So Socrates really played, and that again goes to this metaphor with Glaucon, where Glaucon really just doesn't get how to sing in a <laughs> philosophical way so to speak right um 
And so there is this aspect of their moral psychology that's all about habituation and forming habits that lead to virtue. And, you know, even philosophy takes certain habits and dispositions. Um, you have to have habits of thinking in a certain way, and it takes time to develop those habits. And we kind of have to attune ourselves. Uh, we have to get that sort of temperament, right? All these words, tuning, temperament, uh, the harmony within our soul, they all just basically describe what we, in a kind of straightforward way, think about psychical states and character traits and and virtues and things like that. Um, so it's all about knowing the path through the notes that allows it to become melodic and harmonic. Um, just playing the notes won't, won't do that for you. Um, I, this is reminding me, and uh, Jonathan, I would also like, like to hear from you as well. I'm thinking of, um, you know, I studied music a little bit. I played guitar for like 45 years until I took my job at the school and then I got too busy to play. Um, so I'd learned a little bit about tension and release and, you know, it's there in the blues as, mm -hmm. as well as in jazz. So, I mean, in really, really complex music, but in also much, much simpler forms of music, a kind of a push pull yeah. that's going on, but it's also there in the arts of oration, or even just standing in front of a group of students and teaching how you attend to, to attend to the, you know, when you speak, when you pause, the way you use your voice inflection. Mm -hmm. It's also there in painting and sculpture. And I understand the Greeks understood this really well. Mm -hmm. It's like, what do you emphasize? What do you, where do you kind of, what do you de-emphasize? Mm -hmm. And when I studied painting, um, it was, I, in in some ways it it felt like a trick to me because i was they were saying there's a language there's a i don't know what you would call it it's kind of like a meta language which has to do with the way the artist actually sees the canvas in order to elicit a particular response from mm -hmm. the viewer not mm -hmm. a meaning it's not right. you know yeah you're not trying to elicit a specific mm -hmm. understanding from it but a way to read the canvas and this has to do with tension and release yeah so that that's what i'm hearing in in what you're saying yeah and and this idea comes up in the fado and in a really interesting way and i think that this idea of like tension release and the way in which you know in in really dynamic music you're moving from very different emotions at one moment you'll be joy and then sorrow and then something in between like really pulling us and tugging us in different directions and this idea comes up in the fado um who is this uh it was fado himself says um describing the events that happened that day talking with socrates on the day of his death he says nor again was there pleasure in our being engaged as usual in philosophy for our speech was in fact of this sort Instead, as I realized deep down that very soon that man was about to meet his end, a simply absurd feeling was present in me, an unusual blend, blending together from pleasure and pain. And all those who were present were pretty much in this condition, sometimes laughing, sometimes weeping. And one of us especially, Apollodorus. Oh, sorry, Apollodorus got called out. But um, <laughs> yeah, this mixing of very different emotions comes up again and again throughout the dialogue. And I think it's one of these uh, really important powers that music has. And Aristotle picks this theme up again in relation to um, the mysteries, especially um, Dionysian and the Elysiatic mysteries, where uh, a sort of, uh, he calls it catharsis, 
occurs in music from undergoing a really intense all this tension and sorrow and uh, pity and fear and like these kinds of strong emotions um, and then bringing them into cadence and relaxation and that there's a certain pleasure that comes from that which is sort of greater than the sum of the parts right it's a kind of completely new emotion that mixes all these emotions but is also something more than these emotions and and that schematic of sort of being pulled in time through a multiplicity of different emotions that develop into something different that had to go through all of the stages to get there is what Henri Bergson calls qualitative multiplicity and is one of the like core uh, insights of his philosophy that he bases his whole philosophy of duration on. So, and he pulls for music constantly as well. He never, you know, points to ancient Greek philosophy in particular, or ancient Greek musicology here. Uh, but I really think that that idea is given voice to by Socrates in this dialogue, and, and music is the key to uh, to seeing that um, aspect of human consciousness and psychology. Yeah, beautiful. Oh, beautiful. That was wonderfully said. And I have the the paper here that I was just uh, reading the other day, and let's see, Reconstructing Bergson's Critique of Intensive Magnitude um, in the Journal of the British Society for Phenomenology. And this is one of your papers. And because you mentioned that about Bergson, I just wanted to read this passage. Um, and I encourage the uh, listeners to go and find the paper online too. But here, here we go. So intensity in its proper sense is fundamentally musical. And just as music is primarily suggestive as opposed to expressive, so too metaphysics must evoke a feeling of the absolute. In Time and Free Will, Bergson opposed music to mathematics as concrete qualitative uh, multiplicity of listening. Attending to the sounds as a melody is opposed to the mere notation written on a piece of paper. Music unfolds in time, and thus always something incomplete, always something playing out and transitioning. Concrete duration is the feeling of intensity like the indivisible and indestructible continuity. Um, sorry, one sec. I'll, I'll edit this here. I'll read that and I'll say the quote, actually. Concrete duration is a feeling of intensity, like the, quote, indivisible and indestructible continuity of a melody where the past enters into the present, which remains undivided and even indivisible in spite of what is added at every instant, or rather, thanks to what is added, End quote. While a piece of music seems to be a totality, since it is already written and has a start and end, nevertheless, the reality of music is the concrete events of its sounding and resonating in time. Thus, music is really the epitome of concrete duration. And that's a very, very powerful uh, um, statement there. So, and I think, you know, I think that, I guess what I could add to the conversation, which I think relates to this um, and relates to what we were speaking about earlier, and I think addresses what uh, Stefan, you had said, you had brought in the idea of rasa, which is coming from Indian aesthetics. And I've always liked that idea, uh, rasa meaning taste. And so in, in terms of, in terms of like, we've been speaking about emotion, but even 
if it's like qualitative multiplicity, for instance, there's a flavor to it in a way. Like there's a there's a feeling that is emotional that is that that has certain kinds of psychic images or uh, feelings. It evokes a a multiplicity of things that's always kind of just like a, a taste when you put something in your mouth. It's 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 morphing. It's changing depending on how it hits your palate. Um, you know the flavor profile and whatnot. And so, I think that to relate. Like and I guess I've been approaching working with these and experimenting in these modes with you as trying to trying to feel into what 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 does this do to me and what kind of flavor does it have you know um, and I think that would be it's a really interesting way to think about these these modes like you like we're saying they have the different different modes or different uh, different tunings are going to give you slightly different flavors different types of yes. of you know, I guess that that kind of qualitative multiplicity of 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 the the, the world of sound that it kind of brings you forward into, mm -hmm. but yeah, and with that, I think there's a whole embodied sense too that the that the term flavor really gets at as well, and and a sense of space and things like that, like the the architas mm -hmm. scale that we listened to before, to me, is very closed in and not necessarily in a claustrophobic sense, but it feels tightened and closed in it's not a very expansive uh yeah, the pythagorean scale actually to me is very expansive mm -hmm. you play a series of fifths it feels like it just keeps opening up and the sky is opening up yeah yeah um and 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 music affects us on that level of embodied spatiality and and the sense of space and um has that nuance of flavor to it yeah exactly. yeah totally that passage made me think about something i've been working on since I wrote that, which is uh, the influence of Schopenhauer on Bergson. And I'm not a huge Schopenhauer uh, expert or anything like that. I've just only recently started reading his work um, and I find it fascinating. Um, I'm a very optimistic person. Bergson is an optimist and, you know, Schopenhauer is the ultimate pessimist, but he is uh, someone who makes aesthetics and metaphysics essentially two sides of the same coin or maybe even the same side of the same coin oh uh, that's how close they are and and there's a really close connection there with Bergson and Schopenhauer and that comes through in this idea that music you know for Schopenhauer everything is the will right we see objects and things and stuff but it's actually just like paths of desire pushing through reality either through repetition or through creation right and so our whole life is this kind of willing, forward-driven, agency-dominated, and especially in the very intellectual times of you know Europe and Germany at that um, time period, rationalism, all these things. Um, and music is an opportunity for us to detach from that, Schopenhauer thinks. It puts our will at ease. It uh, suspends that engagement with the world right um it kind of allows us to float away into a realm of pure feeling and meaning and subjectivity uh, and imagination and this aspect of it like music kind of interrupts perhaps our engagement with the world it has this power to re like rend us from the world and pull us back and say hold on just chill for a minute, <laughs> relax. Uh, and that is actually essential for Bergson in 
pursuing metaphysics because the ultimate problem with the way we understand the world and the way we construct meaning is that we use our everyday kind of logic, our means ends logic, our sort of utilitarian way of analyzing things and breaking them up into separate objects and counting them and all of this stuff. Um, and in music, we enter a completely different state, this sort of flow state in our duration. Um, and, and we can analyze it, but that kind of interrupts the intensity of it, the, the real uh, richness of the experience that builds over time. And in which kind of, as I was saying before, different emotions interpenetrate each other and evolve and enrich each other and turn into something new that you hadn't felt um, before. And so music really having this potential to pull us out of our habits and open us to something new um, is really fascinating to me. And like, I've been into progressive rock and, uh, you know, impressionism and atonalism and uh, every kind of weird thing you can do, jazz and every, you know, expanding thing you can try. And, and that's sort of what intrigues me so much about all of this just intonation from the Greeks and from Ptolemy. And that, uh, you know, is a good segue point for us to, to think about the even diatonic piece that we did. And this piece is, this scale, I should say, this tuning is very weird. Um, I, I have a very soft spot for it. I, I, I kind of love it, but it's not easy to, to listen to at first. And my fiance, um, has a lot of patience, you know, to listen to me practicing this thing. Um, and it uses a interval that is very far from what we're used to hearing because it's an interval that is basically halfway between two of our uh, semitones. So, and, and this interval that it's using is... Uh, comes through on the third. So, you know, a, a regular triad chord in Western music is uses either a major or a minor third. And this is what makes it sound happy or sad, basically. And instead of using a major or a minor, we're using a note that's halfway between the two. So it really sounds totally conflicted. Well, it, you can you can make it sound different, but sometimes it can sound totally conflicted. Like, it's sad and it's happy at the same time. It has this really weird in-between sound. Uh, but I do find that the more you accustom yourself to it, the more it starts to have its own sound that isn't just a kind of confused halfway between the notes sound. It has its own distinct quality to it that is, um, at the very least, interesting, even if it's not consonant <laughs> right right well it's um, maybe it's a, a complex flavor that we're not used to that is, it's like exactly it literally is coming from another world in that sense most yeah. people have never heard it i showed it to a friend of mine and he said that he thought that it was just an emotion that we hadn't really named yet or that we didn't that were our culture is not really in touch with <laughs> um it, it's putting forth something coherent and decisive and and articulate you know a feeling that is um, distinct. This kind of has a distinct flavor, but I can't place <laughs> what it is, you know, the emotion behind it. So I'm learning it and I'm uh, assimilating it into my being in some sense. Um, and I've actually, Jonathan, I haven't told you this, but I have a small uh, Spanish guitar that I ripped all the frets out of. And I found out how to 
put frets on it by basically using cut up guitar strings. So now I have this uh, Ptolemy even diatonic on my guitar that I've been uh, playing through because that's my most comfortable instrument. Nice. So you know, to my untrained ear, I'm the word that comes to my mind is whimsical, but it's really surprise. It's just that 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 there are twists and turns where new sounds arise that my ear isn't used to hearing. It's really, really wonderful. Um, so what I was thinking of before is uh kind of expanding on on something earlier in the conversation. Uh this idea of, of um, sorry, um, engagement and uh, attunement, right? Attunement. You you were talking. Okay, so you're talking about the the 
ensemble that gathers to have this conversation with Socrates at the end of his life. And the way that you were speaking of it is almost as if each individual who's present is, an, is another musical instrument. And they're bringing a, a, a certain quality into the room with them, and it creates the sense of the ensemble. And so it was making me think of co community itself, community or the collective as an ensemble. And in the conversation that you were having in the PCC talk um, that I was listening to, um, there was this, you know, the a lot of things, a lot of the conversation revolved around ecological collapse and death and the kind of collective freak out that a lot of people are having. And you were, you said something about uh, fulfilling our uh, spiritual calling in the face of disaster seems in some ways kind of like a higher way of a higher resonance. And I was thinking that what was happening in this room where, where Socrates was, you know, talking to them was he was bringing them to a higher resonance. Uh, there was a mixing of emotions that was taking place where he was helping them find a way to kind of resonate with whatever was arising in that moment. And it reminded me of a conversation that I had with a Buddhist nun uh, many, many years ago who said, I, I'll never forget the conversation. She just said in the course of the conversation, uh, suffering is the inability to accept what is happening at any given moment. You know, we we suffer in direct proportion to our inability to accept what is, right, at any moment. And that the that a skillful performer or like a skillful teacher or a skillful teacher or a, or a skill yeah or a skillful guru, you know, a skillful spiritual teacher has the skillful means um, to uh, help bring the people that they're working with to an active engaged listening and i'm i that's the, the sense that i was getting from your conversation ar around this had to do with socrates's skillful means but also as i'm listening to the music that you're that you're playing i'm thinking i'm my ear is surprised it's it's dissonant and yet really pleasant and even beautiful and i'm wondering if uh you've experimented with playing with ensembles and and not just uh duos duets wow so many amazing questions there first i'll say no other than just with jonathan i haven't um played played any of these tunings with anyone um, in an ensemble um there's a lot of technical uh hurdles in that um especially if you want to play acoustic instruments, which I would prefer always to play. Um, yeah, I, I can imagine. But hopefully in, you know, in a, in a few years, Jonathan and I will be touring with. Uh, <laughs> That's with right. Material. You guys need a um, roadie? <laughs> yes, <laughs> definitely. Um, and yeah, there's so many other things I wanted to hit on here that were just really great um, that you said. Um, one you know, touching on Socrates sort of, he's almost a psychotherapist, he's a philosopher, he's a friend, he's doing all these things at once. And there's a kind of music to it. And and there's a joke in the symposium where Alcibiades busts in, you know, totally drunk, and says that, you know, I'm in love with Socrates, and he won't um, reciprocate, and all of this. And he says, Socrates, you're a Marcius. And Marcius was a, a Dionysian kind of setter. Satyr, Satyr, um, who played the the 
in Greek, it's called an aulus, but people talk about them as flutes, kind of like a reed instrument. There was a big four Homeric epics playing along with Homeric epics. And he and Apollo have a kind of musical battle at one point against each other in front of the muses. And, uh, you know, Apollo's music puts tears in everyone's eyes and everyone's somber and just sitting there in rapture listening to his song. And Marcius plays and everybody gets into a frenzy and goes absolutely insane and probably jumping off the tables and, you know, crowd surfing and stuff. And Marcius ends up losing because the gods, you know, resented being put into that state. Um, so Apollo won. But this, you know, Apollo, Apollonian Dionysian divide that Nietzsche makes so much of. Um, I really think that Socrates, despite what Nietzsche says about Socrates there, um, and, and, you know, Nietzsche is a trickster of his own, but Socrates is very Dionysian in in certain ways. The, the, the theatrics of it, the emotion behind it, you know, he is doing something Apollonian. He's getting us to reflect and be cognizant and to be really careful and to care for each other and care for ourselves and be very focused, right? all of that Apollonian stuff. Um, but there's a whole Dionysian side to Socrates, um, trickstery and emotional manipulation and things like that, that I think, you know, Socrates is a benevolent uh, person overall. You know, you see him kind of making fun of people, dunking on them, all this kind of stuff from time to time. But uh, I think overall, he's a sort of, he's closer to what you might call like a wounded healer or um, someone who's really attempting to bring our souls into a better state and get us to be in a better state so that we can help each other get more people there, basically. And I see a whole psychotherapy in Socrates' philosophy in that sense. And I wanted to connect this again one step to community. Um, I was just at a concert a few nights ago, and um, it was a song that was in a major key, but it had a descending uh, this would be easier to play along, but the uh, it'd be easier to show if I was playing something. But basically, it was a descending um, series of chords going from the tonic to the uh, seventh downward, if that makes any sense. And it was a f not a sad, but a somber song. It was they were kind of um, somewhere between indie and country folk band and everybody in the crowd put their arms around each other and started swaying together. And, and I thought in my head, you know, when a note goes down, it's relaxing. You know, you got, bah, bah. it's softer. It's there's less going on. There's less movement. Like physically there's less movement <laughs> in the second note. And that evokes a kind of, uh, and like some, everything's moving down, relaxing, falling apart almost even. And everybody put their arms around each other and that matched what was happening in the song, right? Like, and then you have somebody come in on, let's say it's Jonathan on the sax and you go, you do something that sounds like crying, something that sounds sad. And then it becomes sadder, right? And every element that is added can either push it in one direction or another. And, you know, something as small as just the chord progression going down can ripple through a hundred other ways of expressing the same thing, which is uh, like a little bit of relaxing in, in something that uh, feels kind of like, wow, I could give up. You know, if, uh, if I let go anymore, I'm just going to fall on the ground and, and give up. And it's moving towards depression kind of <laughs> to, 
tendency, but then it's being pulled back because it's in a major key. Um, and that kind of sway of moving into sorrow and moving into sadness, but then pulling it back towards a cadence, pulling it back towards something major, to pulling it back towards something upbeat, that perfect mixture of, of the emotions. Um, it really just struck me how in music that comes through in community and whether or not that's a community of people, which it mostly is, it can also be the composer in their community with the notes that they're using and with the inflections that they put on those notes and whether they move it up an octave or down an octave or things like very small, you know, adjustments holding the note a little bit longer. Now it feels a bit sadder, right? And there's a hundred million things you could do at any moment in music to just tug it in a different direction. Um, and yeah, that really represented to me the kind of interpersonal community aspect of music. Um, and how dance and things that aren't necessarily even making music or people just putting their arms around each other um, was part of that music. And it represented what the music was doing and in a way responded to the music without making a sound. Um, yeah. Right. It, it was kind of a tuning. Yeah. Different, different um, types, different uh, kinds of becomings in a way, like mm -hmm. different mm -hmm. aspects of ourselves. Mm -hmm um yeah that's 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 really well said it's beautiful i mean i guess i'm to, to bring it to maybe a cosmic level but what comes to my mind is sri arbindo's quote that he, he says that all problems of existence are fundamentally problems of harmony mm -hmm. and that is a very musical statement is loaded <laughs> yeah but it really extends the question of of you know and like we've been discussing like this is harmony from a musicological perspective, you know, mm -hmm. is this or harmony from an interpersonal perspective is mm -hmm. this or harmony between the animal world and you know, mm -hmm. but I think it, it it asked it, that statement to me asks us to kind of open up the, the musical model, you know, to, yeah. to realize that you know what it's, there's a lot there's a lot of music that like music that we can't hear maybe that's one yeah. way to say it it's like yeah. like like the the attunement of the soul Pattern. to the cosmos for instance yeah. or the you know it's like well we can't hear that but we can feel right. it we can intuit it we can yeah we can kind of um you know become with it or we can co-create in in relation to it you know we can have it in hmm. this this connects to the in ptolemy how every season has a a, a key change almost a mode change a new scale and um, mm -hmm, this mm -hmm. is big in, in raga music. There's, they're much more attuned to the <laughs> fluctuations yeah. of daily and, you know, more seasonally, um, shifts. And I, I mean, that's a goal of mine to kind of tap back into that and be able to figure out sort of the, the modes that fit the seasons and things like that. And, um, no, also in Chinese music as well. I don't know a lot about that, but I do know that, that in different seasons you would be tuning differently um and and i i, I think it has to do with also register and things like that but mm -hmm. it's 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 mm -hmm. a it's a holistic system yeah. i mean it has to do with the the, the multiple parts mm -hmm. of the self of the community of the cosmos you know <laughs> i mean i certainly have songs that appeal to me in different seasons like and sometimes it's more or less because i listen to them in that season for the first time and they kind of become attached to that but i certainly have like music that goes with the fall and certain music that goes with the summer and wintery sounding music. And, and, and I listen to them in those seasons and 
and find immense joy in it, you know? So I think it's something we're all sort of already doing and already attuned to. And so many things in music are like that. We're already attuned to it with, without thinking about it. And, and philosophy of music and musicology is just kind of making us think about stuff that we don't need to think about, which is super fun. Um, and I just wanted to say one more thing about the cosmology connection. And, you know, we have lots of the pre-Socratics, um, making these exact same ideas that really echo what Sri Arbindo says. Um, you know, even Heraclitus says that everything is basically the bow and the lyre, right? It's a tension between opposites that are both in conflict and in agreement. And, and really no, uh, no harmony is identical. There's always a kind of conflict and difference and divergence, even an octave, which sounds almost identical is different. And even a, a unison is different. If you sing a note and I sing a note, there's two notes. Um, they can mold into, melt into each other, as a lot of consonants do, but there's still something pulling them apart, right? And so this basic pulling apart and putting together uh, took on a cosmological uh, significance for Heraclitus and for Philolaus and various Pythagoreans. And this comes up again in Plato. And then it's really strong in the early Stoics, whose uh, cosmology and metaphysics I just love and I think is incredibly relevant today in thinking about Bergson and uh, ecology and, and consciousness, where, you know, the, I, I think I mentioned this earlier, but the word tonos is very ambiguous, and one of its meanings is effort. And it basically means tension, and in the Stoic cosmology, tension is like the most important thing, but it also means effort. and subsequently consciousness like every consciousness is a sort of tension between a many different uh forces that are both in conflict with each other and in harmony with with each other um, and so they kind of create an entire metaphysics where you know as you're growing up for example like the developmental process of our consciousness is intensifying that tension that is our Suke, our soul. Taking um, you know, what, what you just said and Jonathan's reference to Sri Aurobindo's quote, Jung said in it's in the introduction to uh Neumann's um what is it, the history of consciousness, the origins and history of consciousness. He says, uh ultimate truth, if there be such a thing. Uh, requires the consonance of many voices. And the, I looked up consonance, and the, the word consonance can mean agreement. It does mean agreement, but it also means harmony. So the, the voices don't necessarily need to agree cognitively with one another as long as there's a, as long as they learn to harmonize with one another. There can be disagreement. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And this, yeah, this connects back to an idea in the Phaedo that, it, that would help kind of put some of these pieces together um, because there they want to make the direct parallel or analogy between the way we put arguments together in philosophy and the way we put notes together in a melody. And it's possible to put notes together. We kind of hit on this, but you can put notes together in a way that's very dissonant. that doesn't create a melody. And they want to, and Socrates wants to say, we might have multiple things that we take are true and we, don't yet know how to harmonize them, put them together. And so in their discussion, they they have uh, 
this evidence basically that Socrates gives for the immortality of the soul, which is our recollection. The fact that we have recollection, Socrates says, points to our the immortality of the soul. And that ultimately, you know, anytime you recognize something in the world as more or less or equal to anything else, that's because not because you gained that knowledge from the world, but because you already knew what that was in your soul because of a prior life. And so they take that to be true, but then they say, well, doesn't it seem that the soul is a tuning? It's a way that things are put together and, uh, you know, kind of exactly what I was just saying about the Stoics, like the soul is this tension between all of the things going on in our experience. And Socrates basically refutes this position and says, no, the soul is not a tuning. And in that process, he actually kind of gives an indirect argument. If you, you know, read between the lines and put things together, and this is what my article is really aiming at, um, arguing for, that Socrates does think the soul is like a tuning. And he says that in a bunch of other dialogues. So, and in that dialogue at other points within the dialogue. Uh, but at first, those two doctrines don't harmonize. They haven't been put together in the right way. They haven't been put together in an order that makes them melodic. And so that's what he tries to do is show that, well, in some sense, you know, if the soul is this perfect immortal thing that existed before our lives, uh, why does it need philosophy? Why does it need improvement? Why does it need to be cared for? Um, that's paradoxical, you know, uh, the soul is perfect, but everybody's, that would also mean that vice becomes impossible, that forgetfulness becomes impossible. All of these things that we see are true. So there's a kind of, uh, refined tuned version of the argument that socrates doesn't give directly but based on the other things he says throughout the dialogue we're supposed to go back and retune them and get them straight and and doing that points to something really important which is our souls themselves we need to do that we need to take the initiative and we need to tune and that's what a soul does is it it, it looks at things and it, it appraises them and hears them and fine tunes them to exactly where it should be and the, you know the metaphor in cybernetics of the, the word cybernetic comes from the greek kubernetikos which is a piloting of a ship right you're at the helm and when you're piloting a ship you you see something change and then you make an adjustment and then it changes again and you're being blown around in the middle of the ocean or whatever so you're constantly having to readjust and so our soul is constantly doing that with our body whether it's keeping it in a healthy homeostasis or in our mental life, uh, you know, not becoming depressed or manic or whatever, like we need to stick to some kind of well-tuned <laughs> uh, middle, you know, uh, balanced state, not too tense, not too relaxed. Um, and so, yeah, that's the beautiful thing in this argument that, that we're, uh, given the kind of breadcrumbs needed to get to the view, but not given the view itself. And this is the indirect method that Plato references in the seventh letter, um, this famous seventh letter. And it's, it's something ineffable. It's something undescribable unless you do it. it. You know, once you've done it, you can talk to other people who have done it and we can say, well, metaphorically, it's kind of like yada, 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 but you can't just do it without uh, experiencing it. And so, Socrates lays these breadcrumbs because it invites us to do it for ourselves. If he just told us the answer, we wouldn't actually have the occasion to say, 
oh, you know what? I'm a soul that uh, has tension and effort and puts forth, uh, uh, strives for truth and beauty and these things. And, and in that process of, of striving, we find the, the most fundamental you know, principle of all. And this Socrates calls this his second sailing. And the metaphor of sailing comes up a bunch as uh, I've already brought it up. But, you know, Socrates is awaiting the death penalty and should have been put to death weeks before the dialogue took place. But a ship was <laughs> sailing to commemorate the uh, ship of Theseus that went to Crete and uh, got the Athenians out from the Minotaur. And Socrates then later <laughs> refers to himself as a Minotaur. Um, kind of using dialectic to keep people trapped in a, a subterranean world that they can't get out of. Um, somebody kind of makes fun of him as that. Um, Socrates, you're just driving us around in circles like the bull in the uh, the Minotaur in the um, thing that the ship of Theseus. <laughs> so all of these stories are interconnected, and 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 that also represents a, an underlying uh, insight about. The psyche about uh, the soul um, and in connection with recollection because recollection both allows us to recall things exactly how they were but it also lets us connect one thought to another thought that we had never connected before it allows for a sort of horizontal movement where thought moves in a new direction creates new connections socrates points out that you know recollection is what does both of those things and therefore it is sort of the most fundamental aspect of the soul that allows us to do philosophy and allows us to connect and order our thoughts in a way that makes them harmonious and 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 allows us to tune them amazing yeah beautiful that is right and it fits fits so well into um I mean, into uh, the roots of the school and and our department as well, your department, but just you know, that Sri Aurobindo was was a, a thinker that was one of the first to, or the first as, as far as I guess I, I'm concerned. But uh, to 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 his metaphysics required an evolving soul, and so the idea of a psychic being, um, because that's that's and it's speaking to exactly kind of what you were you were bringing up in the sense of 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 this there's we are in time and we are in the process of attunement and tuning with multiple multiplicities of things with different planes and parts of of being and becoming and whatnot and and it's just really uh beautiful to think about you know to bring it right back into a musical analogy which when you were speaking that's what came to me but it really makes me question. Well, where is that soul, that center, in a in a sense? It's can't. It's not a center, in a, because when you're playing in, let's say, if we take um, even the idea of the self as having multiple uh, and different kinds of consciousness: the vital, the emotional, the physical, um, the, the intellectual. But um, any kind of assemblage of ideas, whether it's, it's other, is people like in community, or if it's a psychocosmological idea, where it's you know it's, it's people and the cosmos, um, or psycho like the psycho psychological makeup itself as being multi multiple. But if you take the musical analogy of standing on stage and improvising music with people or playing music with people, I'll use the model of improvisation. There's no center in that that. 
if you play with like if you improvise with others and everybody was this neoliberal subject that was ego oriented that said i'm going to direct it because i know how to do it or whatnot and one of the most i think liberating um experiences of playing music with others but in my case i also love improvising is it is that notion of a decentered center and it sort of that's what it really the soul to me is is and the psychic being in that sense it's like it, it's it's almost like the relation between the multiplicities of things and and their their tunings the, the the fact is the tuning is between the two nodes in a way it's not one or the other and it's it's yeah it's it's just really interesting ideas and 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 yeah i think that really touches on socrates view of dialectic as well this really rich notion of dialectic and a friend of mine who's a big reader of plato and philosophy professor always says that socrates like doesn't know where he's going in the conversation like it seems like he's leading them towards you know them falling in a pit which sure okay a lot of the time he is trying to trick them into just showing how ignorant they are like tie tongue tying themselves and all of this stuff but he doesn't know where that's going to happen and if they don't do that he'll just be happy right this person actually knows something because uh, my dialectic didn't work on them so socrates is really in a very impro improvisational state i think always mm -hmm, mm -hmm. right and and doesn't write anything down and doesn't have like a set of doctrines he just gets out there and right, right with the people well and that 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 speaks <laughs> to the the dionysian aspect you know like this idea you're throwing yourself exactly. into into the flow of things and the structures that uphold and and let give condition to this flow fine they're they're there let's say you know but it's more like and i i think that that's it's, it's a nice i mean one of the the ways to think about this that dialectic between the apollian uh, apollo and dionysian is thinking about classical music and folk musics you know, and um, it seems as though the the classical music's indifferent, like in my experience would be in India or Japan or or the West. But it's it's there's a lot of emphasis on those that that kind of the continuity of certain structures that have culturally been developed and and bringing certain clarity and crispness and like and um, and there's such there's so important and so rich to explore music in that way. And then it seems like the the for me in my life like uh, like that would be like a a, a composed piece or a, a classical piece or whatnot or a raga for instance is still a classical art form. In India, they have uh, what's called desi music, folk music, and music of the soil. And there's still light raga structures, um, but you just you it really feels like you're kind of jumping in and you're just everybody's kind of that idea of where it's a, it's a social practice of being together of tuning to each other and you just jump in and start running or start you know <laughs> like jazz improvisation is a very similar feeling and there's there's a lot of structures when it comes in like when it comes down to uh free jazz even there's there's still but it's sort of like the process of becoming together is kind of more privileged than the process of collectively intuiting some kind of a shared historical structure in, in one way but yeah definitely yeah i strongly agree yeah. with that well we've been going uh, i mean this could go on and uh, it will go on we'll have you back on the podcast for sure um but let's uh why don't we end with um a piece the like the last one that we have out right now we have a couple more coming out as well but this one is uh the ptolemy soft diatonic did you want to say something about this one before we uh, we end 
This one is very similar to the first one we listened to, which was Architas Diatonic. Um, and Ptolemy actually calls it um, the diatonic, or yeah, the diatonic soft diatonic. Um, it's basically Aristoc uh, Architas's version of the soft diatonic that Ptolemy is replacing with his version of the soft diatonic, which is the one we're about to listen to. And it again uses the uh, seventh partial, mm -hmm. which is, if you think about that as the seventh chord, the that's the blues seven. note. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. And it, it is a very, like, to me, it's my favorite one we've uh, worked with. Um, it's very beautiful. It, it uses these super major thirds, which are sharp major thirds that sound very shimmery and um, honestly delightful to me. And, and, and that's coming from getting into just intonation and loving a true major third and thinking that anything else than a true major third is not really worth using. Then I came across these super major thirds and find them delightful. <laughs> um, Beautiful. Yeah. Well, we'll end with that. Stefan, do you have any last uh, comments or remarks? And No, just uh, Jack, thank you so much for coming. This has been uh, a really wonderful experience for me, not knowing your work uh, before Jonathan introduced me to you. And um, it's it's just been marvelous. We, As Jonathan said, we love to kind of bring in the arts if we can. And this has been uh, just kind of like a showcase for that and it's wonderful that uh we also get to listen to jonathan's playing on the podcast because that's not something that we do within the podcast although his music uh is featured as the kind of theme music for the podcast but thank you so much i learned a, a oh, ton nice. and uh really enjoyed your company but the only and the only other thing that i really wanted to say was please let's listen to one more piece so. <laughs>